Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest fast when the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have a bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch will tear away from it. The new from the old, and the worse, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skin, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing that? It is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar and the, the high priest and ate bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him, heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, It is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or not, or to do harm, to save or to kill. But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them, how to destroy him. This is God's word. Man, what a gift it is to hear God's word read aloud by the young and the unashamed. Thank you, Lumina. That was a gift to all of us. Are you ready to study your Bibles? Oh, man, we're getting better. God, yes. It's mostly like James's deep voice. Yes. Well, I am too. If I, if I could just, if you would leave your Bibles open to Mark 2, I, I want to just sort of frame up our time. Over the last uh, two weeks, I would say, we found Jesus uh, returning to the, the, the small city, the town of Capernaum to preach and teach some more. And what begins to take place is a series of five controversies, five contentious conversations between him and the scribes of the Pharisees. And firstly, we see Jesus in somebody's house. We assume it's, it's Peter's house, but he's teaching essentially to the whole town. They've all gathered around and then four reckless friends, like reckless in a good way, break into the roof, probably, you know, not the best thing, but it was all they had, and bring down their paralytic friend to Jesus. And everyone is surprised when the first words out of Jesus's mouth is, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, they question in their hearts contemptuously, who is this man that he can forgive sins? And Jesus tells them, I am the son of man. 
I am the son of man who has the authority to forgive sins. And he shows them the authority and power that he has to not only forgive sins, but also heal the man of his paralysis. Later on, he calls someone else to follow him to be a disciple. We saw him before in chapter one call four fishermen to himself, but now he calls someone else to be a disciple. And this dude, Levi, or you may know him as Matthew, he's like one of the most hated dudes in the city. He's a tax collector. And tax collectors were these political turncoats. They were thieves and extortionists against their own people. And Levi, who is now saved and a follower of Jesus, invites Jesus and his disciples to a sort of house party. And everyone there is like the elite. It's the scribes of the Pharisees. It's Levi and the tax collectors. And it's Jesus and his disciples. And you can already see immediately in this house party sort of some tribalism that goes on. You ever been to a party or a get-together and you see everyone immediately form their little cliques on either side of the room? No one really stands in the middle. It's kind of off to the side. Everyone just congregates with who they want to congregate with. And this happens. The scribes, they're, they're on one side and they're, you know, all tight. And, and they look over at Jesus and, and Jesus is no killjoy. It says Jesus is eating and reclining with the tax collectors. And so they, 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 they kind of approach Jesus and they're like, hey, man, like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? The scribes, again, from the paralytic and now at this party, have this contentious disposition about them to question what Jesus is doing, to question, to, 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 to come up against the words and the works of Jesus. They say, why does this man sit with tax collectors and sinners? Which is essentially saying, I've determined that I'm not a sinner, so why are you with them? It's at this point we ask ourselves, church, who are we in the story? Are we the thieving extortionists or are we the self-righteous religious elite? The answer is both. The answer is both. And Jesus says so. He says there's two types of people in this room. There's the sick and there's the doctor. Why do you think you're the doctor? Which goes over the Pharisees' head. See, there's this constant expectation versus reality between Jesus and the religious ones. They expect Jesus to be something, but they find out that Jesus is more. And this propels them towards either indifference and then now, as we see, hatred. We reach a place where the Pharisees see Jesus as the anti-them, as the villain, a blasphemer, a danger to the normative rhythms of life, a cancer to their neatly controlled societies. And Jesus has never excluded them from what's for the people. Every time Jesus' words carry such depth, even applicable to them, their knowledge and their self-righteousness and their legalistic approach to spirituality has caused them to miss the offerings of Jesus. Family, just even in declaring those sentences out loud to you, I have to ask, where are you not seeing Jesus for all that he is? 
Where are you not seeing Jesus for all that he offers and all that he has communicated to us in his word? Chapter 1 of Mark is King Jesus, his kingdom inaugurated, his authority and power in full display. In chapter 2 and 3, Jesus is defining for everyone who he is. It begins that day with the paralytic. I'm the son of man who has the authority to forgive sins. And it continues with his response to the Pharisees in Levi's home. I'm the doctor here for the sick. And in our portion, the last three contentious conversations with the Pharisees, Jesus will continue to bring light to himself, to illuminate who he is and his heart for us. And so I've titled our time together, Ruining Religion. As we walk through the text and see what God has for us, would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning? God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it's true, that it's relevant, that it's applicable to the here and right now. God, we may have a desire to see these words as not applicable for us. God, with the strongest sword available to man your word, would you break that wall? Would you destroy that uh, 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 castle in our hearts that says, this is not for me, but I know someone who it's for. And may we see that the truth of your word is for all of us here this morning. God, would you gift me with clarity as speech and thought as the preacher? And would you gift the congregation with grace for my errors and attentiveness? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. When I was 20 years old, my dad gave me his car. It wasn't my first car. It should have been my first car. My first car was awesome, okay? That's why this one should have been my first car. It spoiled me. I hated this car. I hated everything about this car. I'm not going to tell you what it is because if one of you drive it, I'm sorry because I'm about to slander this car real bad. This car was terrible. I, oh my gosh, I hated it so much. It was just ugly. Okay, so like you know how you see cars down the street and you're like, not for me, but it's for somebody, you know? Or maybe you buy a car that you have now, and you're like, this is not my favorite car, but it'll get me through this season, and then I'll buy the thing I want, right? No, this is none of those. This is the car you look at, and you go, who thought of that? That's what I got from my dad. And I mean, it was a choice, you know? I don't know why he had it. And this car's terrible. The paint was peeling. The windows weren't tinted. They had like the old old window amber hue, you know what I'm talking about, where it's like, it's not clear, it's just old, and so it's not clear anymore. Uh, The AC, like, blew hot and then blew stuff at you, so, like, driving in Florida, you're trying to kick on the AC, and you just got, like, stuff flying at you, just not okay. Um, Power windows, though, you know what I'm saying? Um, It ran like junk, okay? It ran like a car that didn't have a will to live, but somebody turned it on. Right, like the gears, like you would shift and it was just like jolts you. Like I couldn't take anybody anywhere in this car. So anyway, one day uh, I'm coming home from work. It's the middle of the night. 
I worked a retail job in Orlando, that's like huge. And then in Orlando, they don't close at responsible times like here, you know, here, Everything closes at 10 or 9. Over there, it's like 1 in the morning. So uh, I'm on my way home, and I'm on a very dangerous road, by the way. Uh, very dangerous road. The car dies on me, okay? Finally. It's a mixture of frustration, because I wish it did it closer to home, and joy, because it's like, yes, not my problem anymore. Um, so the only way I could get it home, because I was poor, and I didn't have money for a tow truck, I called one of my friends who lived on my street, who was a mechanic, and I said, hey, man, I, I don't know how to get this car home one, and I need to get home too. So how do we get both me and the car home? And he said, uh, don't worry, I got an idea. His <laughs> this is ridiculous. I don't even want to confess this to you. So uh, here's 20-year-old me on this very dangerous road, very known for its car accidents, having my friend ram into me every time my car would lose momentum so that I could make it back home. True story. You just hit me. So like every time I'd be driving, I'd be like, boom. And then I'm like, okay, okay, or driving, driving. So that's how I got home. Um, what if I told you, though, what if I told you that when I got the car home, I painted it, I tinted the windows, I fixed the AC, I got the registration for two years, not one year, because, you know, two years is expensive. But I got it for two years, right? I got my registration done for two years. I got the windows. I put a body kit on it, so now it's pretty. You know what I mean? I got the speakers done. The music's loud and crisp. I did all this work to the outside of the vehicle, and I did nothing for the engine and the transmission. What would you say to me? Justin, that's just as foolish as your friend ramming into you to make it all the way home. That's ridiculous. But here's the thing. I'm convinced that we do the exact same thing with our lives. That we can use religiosity, rules to live by, uh, uh, ways to make ourselves on the outside appear as spiritually deep or spiritually more functional than we actually are. To appear is knowledgeable and balanced. Sometimes we could use what we cognitively know is true or should be true of us. And so we'll, we'll create a disposition of humility that's not real to our character so that we could be seen as that. We do all this work to make ourselves feel and appear that we have more trust in God than we actually do. That we are more anchored and more secure than what is actually true. That's, that's the issue. Our engines and our transmissions are falling apart. Our check engine light is on, but we go for the car wash. Well, family, we cannot just be satisfied with the cognitive understanding that Jesus is good and he changes our lives. The Bible tells us to taste and see. Only then we can truly, deeply see and understand our problem. This is a matter of the heart and not a matter of behavior. This is a matter of why don't I want to pray right now and let me force myself to pray right now and, 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 and tell everyone that I'm prayerful than I actually am. It's about the heart, not the behavior. I don't want people to see my own deficiencies. I, you can only see if the check engine light is on if you get too close. So I'm just going to look 
just fine on the outside. The good news for us, family, this morning is that we can bring these needs to Jesus and under the encouragement and the authority of God's word, find rest. Our text here in verse 18 begins the first of the three final controversies between Jesus and the Pharisees. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting. And some people came to Jesus and said, hey, everyone is fasting but you and your crew. Why is that? And before we get to Jesus' response, we need to do some work to understand why they were fasting to begin with. Old Testament law declared that fasting should only be done once a year on the Day of Atonement. This was a national day of repentance and forgiveness. It was a solemn day, a joyless moment, a day of mourning and grieving your sin. This was also a Sabbath rest for the people as well, something God had instituted for the spiritual health of his people. Leviticus 6 or 16, sorry, 30 through 32 says, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourselves. That is to translate to fasting. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy garment. So this is the law. This is what the law says once a year, once a year, fast on the day of atonement, grieve your sin. But the Pharisees had decided, they do this quite regularly, the Pharisees had decided that God's word was not enough. That holy folks should do this not once a year, but twice a week. So they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And the Pharisees decreed that if you were truly holy, if you were truly sorrowful for your sin, then this is the new standard, not once a year, twice a week. Now, people listened because they were the religious authority. They were the the, the keepers of God's word. They were the ones whom they were to trust for understanding of God's word. But even the Pharisees themselves took this new rule that they made up and they went further with it to further separate themselves from even those who were doing Monday and Thursday fasts. These dudes would... (laughs) powder their faces they would wear shoddy clothing and they would literally like moan and mourn all throughout the city of grieving their own sin they were doing entirely too much they believed that you could not be spiritual unless you were miserable This religious rule was to make you uncomfortable and joyless and John's disciples are coming to Jesus and he says why aren't you following the rules Family, this is the danger of legalism. Legalism is justification by works. Legalism is adding onto the grace and favor, or grace and faith, sorry, roles in salvation and sanctification. It plays out like this I have to be loved by God, and so I'm going to do this. Right? It says, I have to gain God's favor, and so I'm going to behave like this. 
Legalism tries to create emotional connection to God by way of works, but what it actually does is distorts your view of God's love for you. It cheapens it. It lessens it. It doesn't cheapen God's love. No, it cheapens, lessens, your, and weakens your view of God's love for you. It actually creates a callousness to God's love because it exists only when you do. Now, family, you can sit here and say, this is not my problem. But I urge you instead to take the posture of self-reflection and examination and see where it does. Because there are degrees to this. For the Pharisees, it looks obvious to you because maybe your view of God has not been totally cheapened by the degree of theirs. But you can see for yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit and with his help that you are where you are not totally trusting, not totally anchored in the cross of Christ and therefore have created a system of rules and a way of living to follow and give the appearance to yourself and to others that you're secure. Legalism stunts your growth. John's disciples come to Jesus. He says, why aren't you following the rules? And Jesus responds to this question with three incredibly profound illustrations. A wedding feast, cloth, and wineskins. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and worst and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. The new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's look at each one. Let's start with the wedding feast. The illustration of the wedding feast is essentially Jesus saying, this isn't a time for mourning. This isn't a time for mourning. This isn't a time for fasting. See, the point of fasting, according to Matthew 6, is for a time to give up something that is good, like food, that's an example, like food, in order to intensify our expression and intensify our remembrance for something greater than the good thing. In this case, it would be God and his work in our lives. But there's also an emotional maturity that takes place. You're not allowed to be grumpy about it. The Pharisees' fast here is solemn, gloomy, a work happening, uh, like work happening more than which is instituted in the scriptures. Jesus is saying, why are you fasting? I'm here. Why are you fasting? Why are you gloomy? I am here before you right now. You should be rejoicing. I have come. It's not Leviticus time. It's Isaiah time. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he shall swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he shall swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from every face and reproach and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, behold, this is your God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. Jesus is saying it's not Leviticus time. It's Isaiah time. This is a time to celebrate. This is not a time for solemn, joyless mourning to get yourselves closer to me. I'm already here. Family, the Pharisees were unable to see God in the flesh standing before them because the religion they created cheapened the institutions created for them to see Jesus more clearly. Leviticus 16 exists so that you can see Isaiah 25 clearly. You're not hearing me this morning. The issues with the Pharisees is not a good idea poorly executed. It's a self-righteous heart that created extra rules to help them appear more holier than everyone else. The Day of Atonement was also a day of Sabbath rest. You mourn your sin and then you rest in the accomplishments of the one who is coming to atone for those sins. But these busters had Jesus right in front of them and they couldn't see it clearly. Jesus was right there. He was there with rich food and great wine. He was there to destroy the shadow cast before his people. He was there to destroy the veil spread over them, to swallow death up forever, to wipe away every tear from every face and to remove every condemnation cast on his children. He was there to save them. And the good news, family, is that this is for you and for me now. We aren't the guests at the beautiful wedding feast of Jesus. We are the bride. We are the bride of Christ. Who is the closest person to the groom at a wedding feast? The bride. You are currently in the most intimate and most near place with Christ than you have ever been. And you will never lose that placement. Not by any work of your own. Not because you fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Not because you're highly intellectual and able to communicate the, th- the deep things of God. Not because you shout louder, preaching to myself, or more expressive than the rest. But because God has chosen you. Because Christ has died for you. And because the Spirit empowers you. You are God's by God alone. This is not a solemn reality but a joyous one. Could you rest in that church? Could you believe that church? Could you have your anchor secure in this? The joy you have in Christ testifies to the wedding feast. Historically, the church was not known by their politics, was not known by their intellect, but by their joy in the Lord. No bride was ever solemn on her wedding day, especially when the groom 
is Christ. Rejoice, church. Our groom and our king is here. Jesus also in his response says something interesting. He says, what I'm doing is a new thing. I'm doing something new. And he gives two illustrations about this new thing. That it isn't a remix of old things, but it's something entirely new in an old way. A new thing in a familiar way. He talks about the cloth. He says, you can't patch old sails with new fabric. The old sails have been wet, they've been stretched, they've been dried. The stitching in the fabric is flexible and loose. If you patch an old sail with new fabric when it is wet, stretched, and dried, it'll create a bigger hole than was there before. You knit stretched fabric with new, durable, tightly knitted fabric? No, you need a new sail. We're not ditching the concept of a sail altogether, though. You just need a new one. Ditch the old one. It's a new thing in an old way. I don't get it, Justin. Okay? Another more powerful analogy comes after. He says, new wine in old wineskins. In ancient days, wine was fermented in goatskins because of how flexible the leather was. The fermentation process created gases that would come up, and so the leather needed to expand. But if you put new wine in old, brittle, used wineskins, the leather would balloon and pop. And now you lost your wine and your wineskin. So what does this mean? Jesus is saying, I'm doing something completely new. I'm not patching up the old religious systems, and I'm not using the old skins for the new things. If you tried to add Jesus to your regular systems of life, If you tried to add Jesus to your religious way of living, what you end up with is destruction. Jesus is not an ingredient you add into your recipe for life. He's the cookbook and the finished result. He is your life. Jesus is not something you add to your already existing life. No, Jesus is something completely new. You can't add his works to your holiness resume. You and I have done this. You and I have seen this, particularly in people who are interested in the message of Jesus and never fully surrender to him. People who say they want Jesus and good vibes. People who say they want Jesus, but they want to manifest good things. People who say they believe in Jesus, but they trust their horoscopes and they unlock their chakras. You can't have religion in Jesus. You can't have religion in Jesus. You can't work your way to nearness of God. You can't manifest his righteousness over you. All you have is the new thing. All you have is Christ. And this is a good news of great freedom. Freedom from having to develop a religion towards God because Jesus has lived the perfect life for you. Freedom from having to solve the answer for your sin because Jesus is the great sacrifice that has answered for sin's punishment once and for all. Freedom from having to condemn yourself to to a solemn, always weeping, always mourning state of brokenness. In Christ, you have everlasting joy, a perpetual state of happiness and delight in your soul that allows you to rest in the new thing of Christ. But that's not all. 
The fourth controversy comes now. Look to verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? As the most, this is like one of the most pettiest moments in all the Bible. <laughs> and he said to them, have you, not, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he was with, he and those who were with him, now he entered the house of, he and those who were with him, sorry, now, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not, the, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The picture here is Jesus and his disciples walking through a grain field, and the disciples were picking the grain, and what they would do is they would roll it in their hand to sort of remove the husk and get the grain, and then they would eat it, right? So can you just imagine, can you just imagine Jesus and his disciples just walking through a grain field, and like way off the Pharisees with these binoculars, and they're like, hey, Sabbath, cut it out. So petty. But Jesus says something incredible. He says, Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's the thing. In this statement, Jesus acknowledges the original intention of the Sabbath. It was to serve the people of God by getting them a day to rest in the works of the coming Messiah. And they would do that by avoiding all kinds of work. But he also destroys the legalism Pharisees attached to the discipline. He dismantles the whole system of thinking with naming who he is. Jesus is not doing away with the Sabbath. He's not doing away with our need for rest, but he's dismantling the religious, the religiosity, the religion they created about it. See, where man created traditions and rules to make themselves servants of the Sabbath, Jesus is the Sabbath rest we need because he's Lord over it. See, the original Sabbath was to provide men and women with physical rest from their physical works. This was something God himself in all triune power and glory did for his people. This was for their own good to behold him. But the Pharisees took it and they made it into a work. That's crazy. They took the act of not working and they made it into a work to keep. This is this isn't about finding a loophole to eat grain. This is about who Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies and institutions laid down in the past. What Jesus is saying with reference to David, with reference to the Sabbath, with reference to the temple, is this is what he's saying. I am the greater David. I fulfill all that he typified. I am the true king and the result of God's heart. He's saying, I am the greater temple and I will dwell forever among my people. And he's saying, I am the greater Sabbath and I will bring rest and satisfaction that not even the Old Testament could provide. 
Oh, you sleep. This is what Paul means in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, where he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Paul is saying here that the physical rest the Old Testament provided people is completed with the spiritual rest Christ gives us. New wine in new skins. Jesus is saying, I'm completing the religious version of the Sabbath the Pharisees have made. He's saying, I'm the Sabbath. This is a new thing in an old way. Jesus is still calling us to rest, but not one day in seven. Not hard and fast Sundays only. Not don't work or don't enjoy the work of anyone else. And don't let anyone you love work either. That's not rest. That's anxiety inducing. For the Christian, for someone trusting in the works of Christ and not their own works, every day is the Sabbath. Every day is a celebration of the fact that we don't have to do anything physically or spiritually to garner or gain the attention of God. Every day is a restful acknowledgement and surrender that Christ has done it all and done it all well. Those who are in Christ get to observe the Sabbath every moment of every day because nothing I will do today, whether it's working my job or taking a nap, devalues Christ's work on my behalf rest rest family in the true sabbath of christ one final controversy for us to examine one more way jesus will ruin religion and with this i'll close chapter three verse one again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with him and he said to the man with the withered hand come here That's beautiful. Jesus tells you to come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to them, and he he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. To the Pharisees, healing this man on the Sabbath was an act of work. And their self-righteous disposition angered Jesus. It angered him because this pre, the premeditated accusations against him. The Greek here for accuse him is to literally press charges. This was their plan. They were coming to do this. They were coming to make a case against him. They weren't looking to learn. They weren't looking to see their deepest needs be satisfied in him. They weren't seeing how Jesus was the fulfillment and freedom that they needed. They were hardened and looking to destroy. And these five controversies all together between Jesus and the religious establishment we studied They conclude with fire. From them, we learn the beauty of who Christ is. But at the same time, we see the beginning workings of what would be his soon to be execution. When Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath 
It's either the deepest truth or the most ridiculous lie. He's either someone who our whole lives should revolve around or a crazy person. He's either worthy of your total surrender or someone who at most is thought of in the in-between spaces and spheres of the lives of, the, of your life and the many different areas you have surrendered to. And family, do you come to Jesus for everything? Or do you come to him when you're in trouble or not busy just because you don't have the time to come to him at all? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he Lord of the Sabbath? Is he the one who has the authority to forgive sins? And which Christ do you believe? Do you believe the Christ of the culture, the Christ of the, the Republican or socialist, the, the Christ of the heresies, the Christ of, uh, 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 of, of, of your imagination? And which Christ is the Christ that you are surrendering your life to? Or is it the I am? Is it the true king, the new cloth and the new wine? Is it the Lord of the Sabbath. Soon Jesus will be killed and his dying words will be an everlasting truth that all the work he came to do is finished. Your atonement for your sins, finished. His perfect life set aside for you, finished. His fulfillment of all things, finished. The ruining of religion, finished. Family, what is your life? in light of this glorious realization of who Christ is. Are you an old, brittle bag of religiosity? Are you an old, weary, stretched out piece of fabric? Are you ready to be made new and made new again?